in the sense the new testament uses this word for no with a very heavy theological connotation and that is that god looked into the future and already had an intimate relationship with certain people who were not yet born he already was looking at them in a relational way he had a favor upon them he foreloved them so in that sense those he foreknew he also predestined to be confirmed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified we saw all of that i just wanted to review it in five minutes which we did and then we'll move to what is on hand this is a topic that is uh, uh, <clears throat> something that causes revulsion in a lot of people especially in believers as well because we just cannot think of a loving god sending people to hell also um, it is the difficult of all teachings of scripture because for us to think about and accept the fact that this deals with such horrible eternal consequences of for human beings who are made in the image of god is a very difficult thing for all of us to accept um, so we need to look at the scriptural evidence about reprobation now first of all we will look at certain verses and then we'll define what reprobation is look at uh, jude verse 4 jude verse 4 says for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined or designated for this condemnation ungodly people they are who pervert the grace of our god into sensuality and deny our only master and lord jesus christ so there are certain people that jude is talking about who've crept in unnoticed into the church and they're ungodly people is what he, uh, he he describes them as and he says who long ago were designated for this condemnation they have been designated long ago for this condemnation now keep that idea in mind and we'll come to that romans 9 verses 21 and 22 paul says this has the potter no right over the clay now look at the look at the imagery he's bringing here here is a potter who has a lump of clay in front of him the potter has every right over the clay and what this potter the ultimate potter the sovereign potter god himself is doing here is that he made out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use which is he's talking about believers there and another for dishonorable use and god does have the right to do it and what if god desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction so there are certain vessels of wrath that paul calls certain people who are prepared for destruction but here if you notice the verse uh, you will see that god endured with much patience it is not god is actively involved in preparing those vessels for destruction no that is not the concept that you see here but the concept here is that God electing certain people for salvation and passing over the rest of the people whom Paul calls the vessels of wrath. So the non-elect are the vessels of wrath and God is just passing over them and left to themselves. They will reject Christ ultimately, reject the gospel and they will be punished and judged 
for what they deserve for rejecting Christ. So the potter does have the right over the clay. Now here are a couple of things uh, stand out. God is desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known in the lives of the vessels of wrath. And secondly, if you notice the next verse in that, he says that by showing this, it also shows how great his mercy is for those he has prepared for honorable use. The next verse, Romans 11, 7. What then, talking about the nation of Israel, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. 1 Peter 2, 8. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So all these verses tell us that there is a certain group of people called the non-elect who have not been chosen by God, who are not elected for salvation. And God passes over them and they would ultimately be judged and punished for having rejected Christ in their life. So that is reprobation. Uh, we will see a little more about that, but before I get there, I want you to all, uh, I want you all to understand this, that uh, in spite of the fact that we have a revulsion uh, about this and uh, we recoil at this doctrine, we must be careful of our attitude towards God and towards the passages that I have on my slide here. We must never begin to wish that the Bible said something other than what we just explained now. The Bible exactly talks about what we just explained now. And these verses and several more talk about the doctrine of reprobation. So we ought not to try and skirt around the topic. We ought not to try and find another explanation for it that doesn't fit the context or the theology of the Bible. The doctrine of reprobation is something that is taught in the Bible uh, as horrific as it may sound to some of us and as... Um, repulsive as it may sound to some of us, the Bible does teach it with clarity that God does pass over the non-elect and ultimately judges them for their, uh, for their lifestyle and for their sin because that's exactly what they deserve. Now, let me just give you certain uh, differences between election and uh, reprobation. Election and reprobation. Just a few for our understanding. Number one, election is a cause for rejoicing and praising God. Election is a cause for rejoicing and praising God. If you look at Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 6, Paul is praising God. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So he's praising God. He's blessing the Lord and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all of us deserve to go to hell. None of us deserves to be saved. Although we were dead in transgressions and sins, God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he chose us from before the foundation of the world. Now, did we deserve it? Absolutely not. But given the fact that 
we have been chosen and that's why we came to Christ when the gospel was preached to us. It is a matter of praise for us. It is a cause for rejoicing and praising God. Peter talks about the same thing in 1 Peter 1 verses 1, 2, and 3, especially in verse 3. He says this. Let me read that for you. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the doctrine of election is not uh, a doctrine that uh, we need to be repelled about or uh, something that we think uh, should not be in the Bible. But the doctrine of election is something for which you and I as believers must rejoice and praise God for. Secondly, God is active in choosing. And God is choosing in love and with delight. You know, there are several verses in the Bible. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, all those things. So God is actively choosing people. God is actively choosing people for salvation. And uh, we must remember that. Thirdly, the ground of God's, uh, the ground of election is God's grace. It is completely because of God's grace that he has chosen us. Uh, he, has, he has chosen us because of his sovereign goodness towards us. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. Remember that. So his sovereign goodness is the ground of our election. Not any foreseen faith, not any moral, uh, uh, not any moral superiority over other people, not any, any credentials that we might have, not a positive response to the gospel or anything that he foresees in us. But the ground of election is God's grace. The ground of, uh, sorry, uh, reprobation brings God sorrow and not delight. Now we think that God is sitting up there and he's just judging people and he doesn't have any sorrow about it. No, uh, the Bible says in Ezekiel 33, 11, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. So he's a loving God. He's that kind of a God. So reprobation brings God sorrow and not delight. The fact that people are rejecting Christ and people are going to hell is something, although it glorifies God, but does bring God sorrow. The cause of reprobation lies in the sinner. Nowhere in the Bible, again, hear me please, nowhere in the New Testament or in the entire Bible does it place responsibility on God for somebody not being saved. Hear me again, please. While in election, if somebody comes to salvation, it does say that God opened his heart. For example, God opened Lydia's heart. Or uh, those who were uh, predestined to eternal life were saved. So God actively takes his role. There's an active role of God in the salvation of people. And that's why whenever somebody comes to Christ, the credit is given to God because God is the author of salvation. Salvation belongs to God. But on the other hand, when somebody does not come to Christ, the responsibility is not put on God. Rather, it is put on the sinner. It never says in the, in the Bible that this person did not come to Christ because God did not elect him. It rather says that it is because he volitionally rejected 
Christ that this person did not come to God. John 3, 18 and 19. Uh, John 3, 18 and 19. Um, they talk about the same thing. I will just open the verse and read that for you. Okay, John 3, 18 and 19. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only begotten son of God. Okay, hear that. He has not believed. The responsibility lies with the sinner or the angels or the wicked people or the ungodly people who have rejected God's offer. Um, John 5.40. 5.40. You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Where is the responsibility? It is on the sinner. Jesus says, you are unwilling to come to me. Um, the third one, the ground of reprobation is God's justice. Remember the ground of election is God's grace and the ground of reprobation is God's, <clears throat> is God's justice. So um, God demonstrates his justice in judging those people because he cannot look upon sin in comfort and he has to judge people who continue to sin and who do not repent of their lifestyle and their sin. So the ground of uh, reprobation is God's justice. Now, at this point, you might have a question in your mind. And the question is, Raven, if God genuinely feels sorrow for the punishment of the wicked, then why does he allow it or even decree that such a thing will come about? That's a very good question. It's a very logical question, but the answer is uh, God does anything that brings him glory. God does anything that brings maximum glory to himself. So in the wisdom of God, he saw that choosing certain people for election and passing over the other people, the non-elect so that they go to judgment and in turn uh, will face the wrath of God. This uh, plan of salvation brings glory to himself. And that's why God did it. God in his wisdom saw it fit, saw it appropriate to do it this way. If you press me and ask me one more question, I will go back to the language of Paul and I will say, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? I cannot talk back to God. You cannot talk back to God. But the point here is you and I must genuinely praise God because we could have been on the other side. And yet God in his sovereign goodness chose us. And that's why we came to Christ. But on the other hand, we can genuinely take the gospel to the ends of the earth and look into the eyes of everybody and say, if you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, God genuinely is giving you an offer. That's a genuine offer. It's an offer of the gospel. And if somebody repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus Christ, they will be saved. That is the promise of the gospel. Any questions before we move forward? So I have one question. Uh, so election is from God 
and uh, rejection is from man right that's what you told right kevin rejection is the work of god yes okay. from before the foundation of the world mm-hmm. reprobation is god passing over people whom he did not elect okay Uh, Raven, Abhijit, you need to speak up, please. Okay. Uh, can you hear me now? Slightly better, but you could do better. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, my question is: uh, so, if uh, if God chose uh, Jacob, mm-hmm. was there no chance for Esau to be elected as well, or to come to know God as such? I mean, what was the election as such? I mean, like you know. Could... In terms of in terms of no chance. uh if you're talking about god offering esau opportunities to know him yes esau had several times um and uh, esau did continue to have in his life now later on in the life of esau himself he was blessed too and the nation of edom that is to the south of palestine uh, are the people that uh, descended from edom um so uh they were blessed to in some sense but on the whole uh what you come to see is that they were not a chosen nation like like the nation of israel so uh, he chose jacob it is election it is a clear election and he chose jacob and he did not choose esau and secondly through jacob came the nation of israel which was an an elect nation and through uh through uh esau came the nation of edom which is not an elect nation but that does not mean that somebody in the nation of edom if they repent of their sin and trust in jesus christ uh they they will not come to uh they will not come into the kingdom no um there is an offer of the gospel even to them and uh if they truly repent of their sin and trust in jesus christ yes they will come we're saving all of the lord jesus christ but the point here is again uh, you have we have a straw man that is projected i mentioned this last time in the new testament uh two kinds of people don't exist the one kind of person is uh somebody who is elect and yet does not want to come into the kingdom and because he's elect god against his will against the person's will is just drawing him into the kingdom and pulling him into it against the person's will such a person does not exist on the other hand you you also have another person who um who wants to come into the kingdom but god is rejecting him because he is non elect such a person also does not uh, exist in new testament these are two straw men the person who exists in the new testament is that god has selected from before the foundation of the world and when the gospel is preached to them god effectively calls the person and uh, he out of his own will places his faith in the lord jesus christ trusts in the lord jesus christ and he is saved the other people reject volitionally and they are judged that is what you see in the new testament so by that logic do you mean <clears throat> can you hear me yes yeah okay by that logic do you mean that uh, uh, man i mean on a whole everybody is elected in a way or at least given the no 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 see i've been telling you right from the beginning that election is a sovereign act of god where he chose certain people certain number of people to be saved 
Any other questions, please? Hello, Ravindra Murli. Yes. Uh, Anna, you said like uh, John 18 gives uh, reference to the uh, the preparation. Uh? Hello. Uh, no, I said I said uh, John 3:18. Right, you're talking about. Yes. Yes. Okay. So John 3:18. I mentioned that that verse uh, that verse puts the responsibility on the sinner for rejecting Christ. So, what kind of uh, like a condemnation they will facing like they rejected Jesus Christ in the world? Okay, so uh, uh, at least I can talk about one aspect of it, and that is uh, eternally they will face condemnation from God, punishment from God, which is punishment in hell. No, that word said already condemned the world. Yeah, okay. So anyway, so John, um, this gets into a little discussion, Murli. Okay, okay. try to uh, try to get this, okay? okay. Uh, all of us. When you look at the New Testament about various concepts like salvation or kingdom or wrath of God and all of these things, um, you have something called a tension between what is already happening and what is not yet, what will happen in the future. For example, the kingdom is already here, but not yet in its fullness. So the kingdom has been inaugurated and it will come in its fullness or in its consummation when he comes at the second coming. So there is the already not yet aspect of it. In the same way, salvation, are you saved? If I asked you the question, you probably wouldn't think twice to answer the question and say yes. But uh, are you fully saved in the sense of, you, are you glorified? Have you experienced the fullness of salvation? The answer is no. Again, there's the already not yet aspect of salvation. You are already saved, you're justified, but you're not yet saved. You will be saved. One day you'll be glorified and you are now being saved in terms of sanctification. So uh, there is the already not yet aspect of it there as well. The same thing with the wrath of God and we call it inaugurated eschatology. Um, I don't want to get into that. I think, uh, Murli, I've talked about it in my in my studies in John. Okay. Uh, so uh, the wrath of God is something that will be poured out on the unbelievers and all the wicked at the end of history. After the judgment, yes. But it has already been brought into this world and inaugurated in that sense, the already aspect of it. That's why Paul could confidently say the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. It is being revealed, present continuous tense. Paul also tells uh, the Thessalonians, First uh, Thessalonians uh, chapter, chapter 2, Paul says this, that um, uh, the, he praises the Thessalonian church and he says that you people, uh, endured a lot of persecution from your Gentiles, just like the churches in Judea endured a lot of persecution from the Jewish people. And the Jewish people have opposed me and stopped me from sharing the gospel with the Gentiles so that they will be saved. And then he says, they are heaping up wrath for themselves. The wrath of God that has already come. Okay, so, uh, so again, there is that inaugurated eschatology where the wrath is already brought into the present although the fullness of which will come at the end. So uh, again, wrath of God abides on him is what the language is, what is used by John. So these are all already not yet concepts that are in the New Testament, and we must understand that in that framework. 
Any other questions? So, Raven, there is no grace to the people who are not accepting Christ now? Uncle, uh, the gospel presentation itself is an offer of grace. It is a genuine call. It is the gospel has is going to the ends of the earth. And we ask them to genuinely repent and trust in Jesus Christ. It's an offer of grace that there is mercy in Jesus if you turn. There's grace in Jesus if you turn, but they do not turn. And once again, you know, you have the common grace of God. Uh, the Bible talks about it. He causes his sun to shine upon both the righteous and the wicked. He causes his rain to come down on both the good and the evil. There is a common grace of God. He feeds everybody. He answers prayers as, as a, even the prayers of unbelievers as, a, as part of common grace. Uh, Raven? <clears throat> yes. So uh, when you say uh, only a few are elect, okay, and the grace is given to all. So technically, uh, when we pray, for example... Uh, what do you mean by grace is given to all? Sorry, I meant... Uh, the gospel. The gospel is given to yes, all. Yes, yes. Okay. And only a few are allowed to see, I mean, allowed to understand what it is. Correct? Or A few are allowed to understand what it is. Um, there are people who understand the gospel and who reject it as well. So it is not a mere aspect of understanding. Okay, you go on with your question. I think I'll, when you frame the question entirely, we can address that. Uh, my question was with regard to, uh, you know, making a prayer like, uh, Lord, open uh, so-and-so person's eyes so that they can actually see the gospel. Is that? It is a legitimate prayer and you have to pray that way. But again, you can't change the will of God because technically they are not elected, correct? So you don't have to think about who is elect and who is not elect. What you need to do is present the gospel to everybody and uh, let them make a genuine choice. We are made in the image of God. God respects our choice. And uh, it is a genuine choice, and our choices have consequences. So uh, we present the gospel, we leave the choice to them, and they make a choice. And as we present the gospel, um, we pray that, Lord, when I preach the gospel, uh, would you save your people? Okay. Raven, I have a question. Is this Joanna? Yes. Okay. So, so does it mean that uh, God elected only those whom he know would accept the gospel? Again, um, we were talking about it, right, Joanna? Um, yeah. Foreknowledge is not the ground of election in the okay. sense that God did not look into the future and see that there are certain people who are placing faith in Jesus Christ when the gospel is presented to them and elect only those people. You get the point? Yeah, yeah. The moment you say that, that makes the faith of an individual the ultimate determining factor for election. Mm -hmm. And you are basing the ground of election on the faith of man, not on the goodness of God. Okay. So that is the beginning of salvation by works or salvation by man's merit. So uh, the Bible does not say that. The Bible says those he foreknew, he also predestined 
to be conformed to the image of his son. So God in eternity past already in his sovereign grace and his sovereign goodness was um, seeing or looking at people in a relational way, in an intimate way. He foreknew them. He foreloved them in that sense. He was already entering into an intimate relationship in the mind of God with those people. And, uh, and so when you talk about such a thing, it blurs the distinction between what is foreknowledge and what is election. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. So uh, one more doubt. Yeah. So this election is done for once and for all, like since yes, it was yes. done before the foundation, so no more yes. election will be happening, right? It was done from before the foundation of the world. That's right. Okay. For Avantana, that means uh, when Noah built the ark, only eight people were elected during that time? Yeah, I mean, uh, when Noah built the ark, eight people were elected in terms of what? Uh, in terms of salvation. To be yes, saved, that's, you know? that's, that's the concept that the Bible presents, yes. Okay. Uh, Raven, uh, this is Ruth. I have a doubt. Uh, Ruth from Bombay. Yeah. Hi, Ruth. <laughs> hi, hi. Yeah, tell me. So, so my doubt is, uh, since the people are predestined and since they are elected, uh, even if we, I mean, we can't choose. I mean, suppose we choose to not. Uh, share the gospel not that we decide not to but suppose we are not in a position to share the gospel to some people but maybe they are already elected by god so will he himself find a way to get gospel to them absolutely um, okay, so, so absolutely. who he has elected will somehow come to know the truth I mean, gospel. we don't have to take efforts to, you know. No, uh, that is, okay. So uh, that is a concept that is foreign to the New Testament again. Uh, see, Paul says, I endure all these things for the sake of the elect. Okay, notice the language. I endure all these sufferings for the sake of the elect. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that because God has already chosen some people in his sovereignty. Hmm. That gives me confidence to go and preach the gospel with, uh, with, with greater confidence, with an affirmation that because God has chosen people, I will have fruit in my evangelism. Oh. Therefore, for the sake of the elect, I will endure all kinds of sufferings. I will endure all kinds of trouble, you know, shipwrights and being beaten by the Jews 39 times, uh, five, uh, 39 times five and all of those things. Uh, so uh, Paul is saying that he is enduring everything to make sure that the elect hear the gospel and the elect come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then true, uh, fully clueless about who is select, I mean, who is elected. Absolutely, absolutely. That's why we take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Hmm. And not just that, uh, it is based on the presentation of the gospel that the other people reject Christ and on the day of judgment okay um, God can say that the gospel was presented to you That's and you rejected yeah. Christ so then the entire world gets to hear the gospel at least once in their life that is the responsibility that is given to us uh, we cannot be sure about it it depends on us uh, if you ask me the question Raven till now 
everybody who died, have they heard the gospel at least once? The answer is no. There are many people who have died without hearing the gospel. But uh, the point is, um, it is our responsibility to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Okay. Raven, but in this case, uh, even though we have not taken the gospel to the ends of the earth, mm -hmm. uh, in Romans, I think it says, right, that uh, nobody will have an excuse. Oh, yes. Uh, sure. Um, I did not get into that aspect. Uh, that's about general revelation that uh, uh, Paul is talking about there, Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness, wickedness of men who suppress the truth by the wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. And he says, ever since the beginning of creation, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen so that men are without excuse, right? What he's saying is that general revelation that God has given us at least tells us two things. Number one, God's eternal power and God's divine nature. So if somebody looks at creation, they can come away with at least two things about God. That is his divine nature and his eternal power. That an eternally powerful God has created all of this. This is not a product of time plus matter plus chance or uh, a concoction of a few, you know, uh, amino acids and all of these coming together. So uh, now that is called a general revelation. The general revelation is given in, in three different aspects. Number one is in creation. Number two, it's in conscience. Number three, it is in the revelation of God's wrath as well. Romans 1 talks about that. Now, so uh, the general revelation is given to man so that men will not have an excuse on the day of judgment. Nobody can stand before God and say, you did not give me enough evidence. That's wrong. Because Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by the wickedness. So the problem with man is not the absence of evidence. It is rather the suppression of evidence. So nobody can come and claim, you know, I have, I, I talked to a lot of, um, I wouldn't say a lot, uh, a few uh, agnostics and all of that. And they come to me with questions and they say, Raven, there is no evidence for belief in God. And I tell them very clearly, I have to speak, uh, speak scripturally here. And Paul says this, you may not like it, but Paul says, this is what I tell them, that the problem with you is not the absence of evidence. It is rather the suppression of evidence. So now hear me, hear my statement, please. General revelation is enough to condemn people but it is not enough to save people. Got it? Uh, what, is, what is needed to save people is a specific revelation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any further questions on this? So please? the people in the Old Testament would be following, following uh, the condemnation, condemning part of the what you just explained? Sorry, sorry. Say it again, please. Uh, people in the Old Testament, on uh, mm -hmm. like you know, will they fall into that category where they didn't have no. the gospel? No, uh, no, not at all. So the thing is, uh, okay, so that, that could be a subset of it. But let me explain how the people in the Old Testament were saved. There is no difference in the way people were saved in the Old Testament, and people are being saved in the New Testament times. Okay, uh, it is always by faith. You are justified by faith. In fact, 
Paul, after explaining the concept in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and all of that, uh, he comes to chapter 4 and he does not take somebody from the New Testament as an example for somebody who's been justified by faith. He goes back to Abraham. And he quotes Genesis 15, 6, and he says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham was justified by faith, is what Paul is saying. So anybody in the Old Testament who looked to the promises of God, who understood the promises of God and placed their faith in God for salvation, they may not have understood all aspects of it. They certainly didn't. They did not understand the atonement of Christ. They did not understand that there was a Messiah who is coming, uh, who, will, uh, who will be the substitutionary atonement on their behalf. They may not have understood all of it, but there are certain promises of God that they trusted in and God accounted it to him or credited it to him as righteousness. So this is the way we generally say it. Uh, you have the Old Testament believers on your left-hand side. On your right-hand side, you have the New Testament believers. Right in the middle is the cross, okay? So the Old Testament believers were looking forward to the cross. The New Testament believers are looking backward at the cross. But you're all saved by, uh, by your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or in the promises of God, as the case may be. Is that clear, Ruby? Yeah, yeah. okay. Okay. Anna, what about the uh, people who never heard about the God of Israel in the Old Testament? Um, <laughs> That is a tough question to answer. The, the Old Testament does not clearly tell us what about the nations that did not hear about the God of Israel. Um, on the other hand, it does place in one sense the responsibility of on the nation of Israel to be a light to the Gentiles, to be a light to will the Will there nations. be difference, yeah, Raven, will there be difference between uh, the people who were, who were before the law and after the law? Uh, Law as in uh, who are saved? Did you say L-A-W law or L-O-R-D Lord? I couldn't hear your question. Your voice was not that. clear. We couldn't undertake it. Okay. Is it is it clear now? Can you hear me? Even he said law, L-A-W. L-A-W, okay. Uh, was the question, is there a difference between uh, people who were saved before the law and after the Mosaic law was given? Is that the question? I am not sure. We need to ask Matai Ankle. John Matai Ankle, I'm asking you. <laughs> Did we lose Uncle or something? I yeah, I think, I think he's, uh, he'll come back. Okay. Um, Anybody else had any questions? I was answering some question and uh, I was interrupted. What was it? Uh, Seth oh, asked, right? People who doesn't know okay, yeah. Israel. All right. So, uh, see, in the in the Old Testament, evangelism was quite the opposite of uh, of the New Testament evangelism. In the New Testament, you're called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You need to step out and go. But in the Old Testament, the Israelites were not doing it. Were not asked to do it in that sense. But what they were asked to do is live the life of God in such a way uh, under the Mosaic administration that there'll be blessings for them. There won't be curses and the surrounding nations will look at that and they will come and worship the Lord because their God is great. Look at how he's blessing them, that kind of a thing. Uh, so that is the difference. 
now, if you specifically ask me what about the uh, nations far away from Israel uh, and all of that, the answer is the Bible does not, the Old Testament does not clearly reveal to us what it is, but it does say in the New Testament that um, God has revealed himself in general creation. And if somebody probably sitting in the dense forests of South America, would look at the stars and uh, think that, well, you know, I don't think this came about uh, by itself. Uh, I think that uh, somebody who's mighty, somebody who's eternal has created this and I would like to know him. I think God will sometimes even bypass human mechanism reach out to that person. That is a promise that is given. For example, in the New Testament, Cornelius. Cornelius was a worshiper of God uh, and uh, he, he was praying to God. Uh, God had to give Peter a vision, change his theology and uh, send him to preach the gospel to Peter. Sorry, sorry, send him to preach the gospel to Cornelius. So you have, you have certain indications like that in the New Testament that God will reach out to you uh, probably through a missionary or probably through uh, sending somebody or through the internet or some way um, where the general revelation is supplemented by special revelation of the gospel and he will draw people to himself. In the Old Testament, uh, not sure the Bible does not clearly present it. There are a few answers that haven't convinced me, but uh, having read the Old Testament, I, it does not present a very clear answer. Thank you. Um, yeah. uh, in ethical, the reference which you just showed, um, yeah. is it referring to the non-elected when they sin, God is not delighted, or is it the elected when they it is, sin? No, no, no. Uh, it, is, it is talking generally that people, when, they, when the wicked, especially when you use the word wicked, uh, it is a general reference to people who are opposed to God. Okay. Okay. And in the New Testament sense, these are people who are non-elect. Okay. So uh, the Bible is saying in the Old Testament itself that God does not delight in such a such a thing. Okay. All right. Thanks. Wow. This generated a lot of questions. Anything else? Anybody else? Um. Uh, Caleb, you didn't have any questions today. No, no, no. Okay. Uh, John, my uncle, you, you've come back. What was your question? Will there, no, I, I, will there be difference between the, the people living before the Mosaic law and after the Mosaic law was given? A difference in terms of what? In, uh, uh, in terms of how they were saved? Yeah, the answer is no. Uh, salvation has always been by faith uh, in the Old Testament in the promises of God. Um, so uh, the law was given as a schoolmaster. Paul talks about that in, in Galatians. The law was given to lead us to Christ. Okay, so Paul again talks about that in Romans. Paul says, um, "If if it weren't for the law, then I would not know. I would have. I would not have known that." You know, murder is a sin. So the law makes us aware of sin. It gives us awareness of sin. Uh, the law was never given to save anybody because even in the Old Testament, it is very clear. Um, 
people are saved by faith in the promises of God in the Old Testament. Okay. Starlet, how come you're silent on this topic? No, no, Stacha is not there. Stacha is not there. Okay. Went. All right. Uh, Sandra, any questions? No, Raven. Okay. Who else didn't ask? Uh, Ruvina, any questions? No, no. Shovit? Uh, no, 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 right now. Sorry? Not right now, maybe. Oh, not right now. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. We'll move forward then. Let's get to uh, get back to the verse that uh, we were talking about. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be confirmed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many, many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he, whom he justified, he also glorified. Now notice, it is the same set of people that is being talked about. Nobody is missed out here, right? Um, the people whom he foreknew, he predestined. The same people he called. The same people he justified. The same people he glorified. That's why we call this uh, the golden chain of redemption. Foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. So first we talked about foreknew, foreknowledge. We talked about election. Uh, predestination, uh, of course we talked about predestination, election is a subset of it. Now we come to the third thing, those who he predestined, he also called. What is this called? So we need to differentiate between the general gospel call and the effectual calling of God. Now hear me please very carefully. The general gospel call and the effectual calling of God. Um, There are several verses in the New Testament, we can't get into all of it, uh, that say that God calls people powerfully out of darkness into his marvelous light is a language that Peter uses. Then he calls them into the fellowship of his son, language of 1 Corinthians. Uh, people who've been called by God belong to Jesus Christ, language of Romans. They are called to be saints, again, Romans 1. Um, you have come into the realm of peace, 1 Corinthians 7. So you have come into freedom. He's called them into hope. He's called them into um, holiness. He's called them into patient endurance of suffering. So all these is all this is a language used by the New Testament. And all these verses indicate that it is not a powerless man standing there and calling somebody and waiting solely on their response but it is a powerful sovereign individual who's calling um, to make sure that his calling is effectual in the sense when he calls people, he calls people effectually. Now, I like to put it this way. God makes the gospel in the minds and the hearts of the elect so 
appealing that they will believe or he draws them to himself and that is called effectual calling now we must notice here that the effectual calling uh, needs to be distinguished between this uh, needs to be distinguished from the general gospel call um, and uh, we also need to understand that the general gospel call goes out into all the world remember we are called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth but notice these verses here second Thessalonians 2:14 to this he called you through the gospel so that you obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's called the Thessalonians through the gospel, and that is an effectual calling. And the purpose of which was to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not a general gospel call that uh, Paul is talking about. This is something that is effectual because he's called you through the gospel so that the result is they may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, there are many, of course, who hear the general call of God and they do not respond to the gospel message. But in some cases, the gospel call is made so effective by the working of the Holy Spirit in people's hearts that they will respond. And that is called effectual calling. It is calling effectively. In other words, effectual calling is an act of God, God the Father, who speaks through the human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they will respond in faith. He calls people effectively that they will respond in faith. The elect will respond in faith. John 6, 44, Jesus said this, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is the father who's drawing people to himself. Acts 16, 14, a beautiful verse, I like this. Uh, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, um, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened Lydia's heart, and that's how she came to the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard now notice here it is only when you hear somebody preaching the gospel can you believe and how are they to hear without someone preaching so the effectual calling of god is his call through the gospel and he summons people powerfully and effectively in such a way that they respond to the gospel. They will respond to the gospel. Now, it is important not to give an impression that people will be saved merely by the power of this call apart from their will or apart from their volition. No, nobody is saved by the gospel apart from their or in spite of their willingness to believe in the gospel. So here is a human responsibility. There is a sovereignty of God, and there is a human responsibility as well. Again, it's a tension that uh, the scriptures uphold. So although it is true that effectual calling awakens and brings forth a response from us, we must always see that in the New Testament, 
this uh, response is a voluntary response. This response is a volitional response. This response is something that understands the gospel and places his or her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So God summons people powerfully. He calls them effectually, but not in spite of their volitional response or willing response, but through their willing response. Um, so we saw the difference between the general gospel call and the effectual calling of God. Now, uh, I, think, I think it's all becoming clear now. We said God has chosen certain people for himself called the elect who will be saved in time. But the gospel must go to the ends of the earth, right? That's a general gospel call that goes to the ends of the earth. But when the gospel is preached to the elect, God draws them to himself. He effectually calls them. He summons them powerfully, again, not in spite of their will, but he makes sure that he calls them in such a way that they will respond in faith, or he makes the gospel so appealing to them. The, the convicting work and the effectual work of the Holy Spirit is so powerful that they will respond positively to the gospel. Any questions on this, please? Nobody has questions? Okay, what does this gospel call, the general gospel call involve? The general gospel call involves certain uh, content in the gospel. And that is, we need to talk about the fact that everybody is a sinner. We need to talk about the fact that the penalty for our sin is death. We need to also talk about the fact that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sin. And if they truly and honestly repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ, they will be saved. It is an honest call of the gospel. And we must also invite people to respond to Christ personally in repentance and in faith. Because what Jesus said when he said, come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It is an honest call to everybody. And the promise of the gospel is forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We can also tell people that when you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, you are given the promise of forgiveness of your sins. And you're also given the gift of eternal life. I'll pause for about 10 seconds to see if you have any questions. Okay, shall I move forward? Yes. Yes, okay. All right. Now you see the logical order that we've been seeing. Number one, you have those he foreknew. We talk about foreknowledge, predestined, election, and there is a call, there is the effectual calling of God. And next you have conversion. Okay, conversion. Conversion here uh, involves two things. Positively, it is faith. Negatively, it is repentance. So um, conversion here means there is a turning from sin, which is called repentance. And there is a turning to Christ, which is called faith. 
So uh, you have faith and repentance as two sides of the same coin. Both are essential because you cannot repent and not have faith. Because if you repent of something, you must place your faith in something. Uh, so uh, you have repentance, which is the negative aspect of it. You turn from sin and faith, the positive aspect of it, uh, you, you turn to Christ. What is repentance? Uh, we'll talk a little more about that uh, uh, as, we, as we look at some of the pieces. But conversion is our willing response to the gospel call. Conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely, volitionally, out of our will, repent of our sin and place our trust in Christ for salvation. So there is a repentance part and there is a faith part as well. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Notice the language used by John here. He says, to all who received him, it is a reception of Christ. To all who believed in his name, there is an act of volition there. There's an act of will there. They believed in the name of Christ. He gave them the right to become children of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes, again, faith. Uh, faith is not a leap in vacuum. It is a response to certain evidences that are presented to you. It is a reasonable faith in the Bible. So whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. All that the father gives me will come to me. And, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will by no wise cast away. The Bible also talks about repentance, um, testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance towards God and of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is repentance? Repentance is um, a heartfelt sorrow for sin when you understand in your mind what sin is, who Christ is, and the remedy and the antidote that he is for your sin and the beauty of salvation. And you renounce that uh, sinful life and you make a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. That is repentance. Um, uh, the Christian life is a life of repentance. For example, uh, let me give you an example here. If, uh, if you're driving towards Mysore, you see the sign there, Mysore 170 kilometers, but you wanted to go to Chennai, which is in the opposite direction. You're driving towards Mysore and you stop and you ask somebody this question on the way, uh, which way is it to go to Chennai? And the person says, I think you're completely in the opposite direction. You're going towards Mysore right now. You need to turn around and then you go the other way and you go to Chennai. Now that is repentance. You turn around and you go towards Chennai. That is repentance. But if you still continue going towards Mysore, although the knowledge, the right knowledge of it has been given to you, it, it remains a mere knowledge. Uh, you have not acted on that. There is no heartfelt, there's no heartfeltness in that message. It has not gone into that heart. So if the person still keeps driving towards Mysore about 40 kilometers again, and he stops somebody on the way and he asks the same question, which way is it to go to Chennai? And, he's, and that person also says, well, you're in the wrong direction. You'll have to turn around and then you go. 
that is repentance. But the person, if he still continues, he will never get to Chennai. He will only get to Mysore. Uh, repentance is that kind of a U-turn to go to Christ, forsaking your sin and going towards Christ in faith. That is repentance. And repentance is a summon that is given to us in the gospel. We must preach repentance as well. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly sorrow produces, uh, worldly grief produces death. Now there is something called a worldly sorrow. Um, there is a grief in the world, even in the worldly sense, that may involve a sorrow for one's actions. And that sorrow may be because of the punishment that is involved or because of regret that is there or also seeing how it, it has affected others in their lives and you feel sympathy for them. Because of all these things, there may be a sorrow, it's a worldly sorrow, but that worldly sorrow only produces death. It does not lead to repentance. A genuine repentance is produced by a godly sorrow and godly sorrow leads to repentance. When you understand that you've sinned and you repent, that's where it leads to salvation. Um, uh, there is a worldly sorrow that I talked about, uh, which is because of you know, perhaps punishment or fear of punishment or uh, losing your place in the society or your self-esteem. All such things may bring some kind of regret or some kind of a grief but that produces death is what Paul is saying here. So positively, it's faith. Negatively, it's a repentance from sin. You turn away from sin, that is repentance, and you turn to Christ, that is, that is faith. So conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we repent of our sin, that is negatively, and we place our trust in Christ for salvation, that is positively. Any questions on this, please? Any questions? Raven, so yeah. many of these, uh, there are many of these denominational Christians who believe on the Lord and also live a life of maybe, I'm not sure if I can say repentance, but, uh, but you see them you know, believing the Lord completely. Sometimes you feel their faith is more than what I would have. So is it is that also counted as a belief in the Lord? So, uh, it's a question. Um, if you claim to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and not show the fruit of salvation, is that real belief in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that the question? Um, yeah, in the sense, I, you know, many a times we talk about how we are believing in the Lord when we, you know, uh, reach a point where we actually talk, uh, confess our sins and there's a sinner's prayer and all those kind of things. Uh, but uh, in many of the denominational Christians, they do not have such an experience, but they know the Lord in a uh, very personal sense many a times so and they would even accept him as the only god and there's no other god so where is okay. is that even counted as 
faith which All right. saves. Okay. So, okay, good question. Now, uh, when the Bible talks about salvation, the New Testament talks about salvation, it is talking about a response to the gospel, Ruby. Uh, a positive response to the gospel gives you salvation. Okay, now what does that gospel contain? The gospel contains certain content. I mentioned a few things to you that we are sinners, that um, we cannot save ourselves, that Christ is the only antidote to salvation. He came and he died in our place and the wrath of God abides on us. When we repent of our sin and trust in Jesus Christ, we will be saved and all those things. So there is this content of the gospel. Now it is possible to merely give a mental assent to the gospel. It is possible to have mere knowledge of the gospel because there are several people who have a knowledge of the gospel. Um, but that is not what the New Testament is talking about when it says salvation. It is not a mere knowledge of the gospel, but it is acting on that knowledge. So, uh, for example, Paul says in Romans 1.32, they know God's decree and uh, those who do such things deserve to die but they not only approve of such things, but they also practice them kind of a thing. Okay, so that's Romans 1.32. James also says this. Uh, he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Uh, even demons believe and shudder. So uh, if you merely have knowledge about God's existence and about the gospel, that only qualifies us to be a demon, you know, in one sense. Uh, but knowledge and approval merely about certain facts about Jesus Christ are not enough. For example, you know, uh, in, in the book of Acts, uh, Paul, uh, Paul looks at Agrippa and he says, Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And he says, I know you believe. But Agrippa is not saved. Agrippa does have mental knowledge and he even agrees with what the prophets are saying, but that didn't lead to any kind of a life change or uh, attitudes change. Um, the Bible, when it talks about saving faith, it talks about trust in Jesus Christ as a living person, where you entrust your entire life into his hands, even at the cost of your life. Even if it costs your life, you entrust your entire life to him. And that's why uh, John, especially when he writes about belief, he writes about believing into the Lord Jesus Christ. It is believing and resting in him. So in the Gospel of John, if you study that, uh, belief is something that takes men right out of themselves and puts them in union with Christ. So it's not a merely mental ascent that you give or merely knowledge and uh, approval of knowledge. It is part of that, but that needs to sink down into your inner core of being where you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ fully with your life for salvation. And that produces life-changing results. That is what salvation is. Uh, so when a person who is like so mentally strong in what they believe, uh, it's very difficult to reach out to them. So how do you, you know, show the difference to them in such a regard? Because you have a lot of people who are walking in that mental acknowledgement. Sometimes right. I think our kids also walk in that same path. Right. Yeah. Okay. That is a very good question. There are no easy answers to it. Um, first of all, we must acknowledge that salvation is the work of God, but we do have a responsibility to do. Number one is pray for the individual and pray a lot, especially people who have good knowledge of facts. 
um, pray for certain those individuals and uh, pray for a certain time when you're going to talk to them and keep praying for them until you actually meet up with them and talk to them about the gospel. Now, uh, there is no substitute to presenting the gospel in its clarity. You can talk about um, the entirety of the gospel. And one of the things that you can also include, which I think needs to be included in every presentation of the gospel, uh, is the cost of following Christ, the cost of discipleship. And you see that throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospel of Luke from chapters 9 through 19, you call it the Lucan travelogue where Jesus is traveling from uh, Galilee to Jerusalem to die and he's talking about the cost of discipleship. Read those 10 chapters. Uh, you see that there is a cost involved in discipleship. Uh, Jesus said this, uh, if somebody is going out to war, if he does not sit back and assess uh, how many members he has to war, how many foot soldiers he has, how many tanks he has, um, all of a sudden he finds himself in, in the middle of the war with a bigger army that he is facing. He cannot turn, turn back then. It will be disastrous for him. So it is, it is better for him to sit back first and assess the cost before he goes out to war. Second thing, if you're building a house, uh, all of a sudden you get up in the morning and you start building, it'll be a mess. It's a, it's a disaster because you don't know how much finances are there, how much it costs, you haven't planned anything. But on the other hand, if you've saved up money, planned up for it, and then you know when, when it's the right time, you start building your house, you might have a beautiful house at the end of it. So what, what Jesus is saying is he's talking about assessing the cost of becoming a believer. So it's important to talk to people that a mere ascent, intellectual ascent is not enough. There is a cost to following Jesus. And, uh, and as disciple, if you're a real disciple of Jesus, you will have the cost of following Jesus. You will understand the cost of following Jesus. And you'll pay the cost of following Jesus. That's number one. Number two, we also can tell them the fruit of salvation. For example, the, the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and all of that. You know, uh, for a believer in Christ, inevitably, there has got to be the fruit of salvation. Or the gift or, or, or the or the fruit of the spirit if that is not seen that is not exhibited um, then we can talk about it from that aspect as well so i would say talk about the cost that is involved uh, in following jesus and also talk about the fruit that is the result of being saved okay okay any further questions uh, the, like, uh, so uh, most of my friends were Catholics and uh, they would have a belief in, God, I mean, in Christ and they believe Christ has died. And uh, so if they have that belief for sure, they're going to heaven. And it, But they do also pray to Mother Mary. Is it our responsibility to uh, tell them you shouldn't be doing that or is there a problem in them doing that kind of a, a prayer to Mother Mary and all of that and giving an equal um, position to Christ and Mother Mary? Yeah, okay, a good question. Um, again, it is a tough question. Um, you cannot believe in the Lord Jesus Christ exclusively as your Savior, Lord and Savior, and also have Mary in your heart in the same sense and give her the same position as Christ. That's contradictory, isn't it? Um, yeah. 
okay but most catholics don't do it they they see her as they see her as somebody who's a mediator uh, uh, she would go and talk to christ christ would go and talk to god and in turn you get the answer to prayer but the point is uh, there the right teaching of the bible is essential and necessary about uh, who's the mediator between god and man we only have one mediator between god and man uh, and then the right teaching about mary and all of that is necessary but the point is you, you said they all believe uh, yeah they all believe again yeah. again believe belief is not merely uh, intellectual assent it is not approval of certain facts that the bible says it is believing into christ it is giving your life over to him into his hands for salvation it is taking everything out of yourselves and placing yourselves in christ it is in that sense it is a belief in the lord jesus christ now uh, that necessarily produces certain results i am not saying that there are there are no believers in catholicism no there are several i know i know of uh, of some uh, nuns who still are in the catholic church and who who are genuine believers because they have because salvation is about faith you trust in the lord jesus christ and you you are saved regardless of your doctrine regardless of the church that you go to uh, but the rest of it after you become a believer is when the discipleship begins the discipleship involves good teaching teaching them to observe all that i've commanded you and so that involves guiding them to the right church or perhaps if you're able to uh, teaching them the bible and the right things uh, all of that it it takes time it's it's a journey but it's a journey of discipleship We have five more minutes. Any questions, please? I'm Raven's uncle. Yes, Danny. Um, to get like be saved, we need both faith and repentance, right? We can't like just have repentance, right? Ah, uh, see. Again, Danny. The thing is, when you're turning away from something, you're turning to something. Isn't that logical? Yes. Yeah. so you are turning away from sin repentance you are turning to christ in faith so they both go hand in hand you can't have one without the other in one sense they are like two sides of the same coin and the bible does present it that way and repentance is preached and people are called and summoned to repent and place faith in jesus christ okay thank you yeah others please show with now you have a question um no bhai i'm not right now <laughs> okay uh ruth ruth timi um hello yes yeah so uh, i have a small doubt now uh, you were talking about those uh, catholic nuns okay so um, they are believers but they are still attending a catholic church no i'm not saying all of them are believers i'm saying i know people who are believers yeah even i know people who are yeah. believers and like strong believers but then they are they are in a position that they cannot leave their church or they have to be there so right. is it right for them to say that um 
the Lord actually wants us to be here so that we can uh, shepherd some people who are over here, talk to them and be with them. Is it, is it right? Uh, <laughs> like I have uh, heard a lot of them say this. I, I understand that, but I don't want to condemn anybody by saying that you're outright yeah, wrong. Like we are nobody to judge them also. Uh, but you know, the Bible, the Bible does say that you, you have a journey of discipleship. Right? And that discipleship involves growing in your grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus talked about teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So that's the task of the teachers. It is not just merely teaching and going away. Uh, it is also making sure in a church context that uh, they observe all that is being taught as well. So that is the journey of discipleship. Um, that is what is lacking in the church there. So if you have good friends who you can talk to and take them in their journey, slowly, graciously, lovingly praying for them and imparting them the right teaching of the Bible. Uh, I know of people who've come out of it into the right teaching. So uh, ideally example, they should be coming out of it? Um, uh, that, would be, that would be the teaching of the New Testament because you don't have any, on several fronts, you don't have any ecclesiastical structure there in the New Testament. You don't have, uh, you don't have that nunnery there and all those kinds of things. Uh, so ideally, they've, they need to be disciples of Jesus Christ. But otherwise, uh, they are saved and um, uh, they are children of God and they go to heaven, if, if, right? If they have placed their exclusive faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, yes. Yeah. Salvation is by faith and by faith alone. And there are a lot of believers for them. The only thing that would be uh, pending would be baptism. But they are, uh, they have, uh, you know, they are believers. They have, yes. they're born again. And so um, is that so also the, okay? I'm not saying it's okay. Uh, again, it is, it is discipleship. It is where you stand in your maturity in Christ. Um, the Bible sees baptism as a logical outflow of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's what is presented throughout the New Testament. You are really? saved and you're baptized. Uh, not baptized as a child, but you're saved and you're baptized after you understand the gospel and you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Really? Right? So uh, baptism is a logical outflow of it. Again, uh, you need to teach people who haven't understood it um, you need to teach people from the Bible that this is what is a logical thing. It is a commandment of God. It is, it is an identification. It is, uh, it is an outward expression of your inward faith and all these things. But, you know, uh, there are people who, even after teaching, have a kind of a rebellion in their hearts and they still wait. We just need to pray for them. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, uh, I'll take one more question and then we'll stop. All right, uh, thank you. We will meet tomorrow at 2 p.m. once again. I will ask, uh, um, Rojit, can you close in prayer, please? Yeah, sure. Our Lord, our Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for giving us this wonderful time 
for us to connect in this manner, great Lord, for helping Ravadana to speak from your word, speak about salvation, speak about our election, oh great Lord. We have nothing else to tell other than thank you for making us part of that election, oh great Lord. Lord, when many people around the world are suffering in this pandemic, oh great Lord, you have kept us in safe places. Thank you for that. Please help us in the rest of the day, in the rest of the day, uh, days of this lockdown, that we might spend time in your word and in prayers, oh great Lord. We give everything in and to the great name of Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. 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 B